Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Catholic Truth Podcast, an apologetics and evangelization organization dedicated to bringing you the Catholic truth that comes down to us over 2,000 years from Jesus and the apostles. We want to help you to know your faith, love your faith, and live your faith with purpose and passion and even be able to defend it. Anyone from anywhere at any time can come here to know exactly what the Catholic Church teaches and why and how it can transform your life. And sometimes on our show, we have guests who have conversion stories or who have uh, amazing theological knowledge or who have written books on a particular subject. And today we have uh, Rod Bennett, who is a wonderful guest, and he is the author of several books, including Four Witnesses, in the early, in fact, the, that's four, F-O-U-R, just in case people out there don't know. And this book is widely considered to be one of the top apologetics books uh, for modern classic apologetics. And it's been life-changing for many from what I've heard. And he's an evangelical convert to the Catholic Church. He's a speaker. He's a writer. He's regularly on Catholic Answers. He's been on The Journey Home, Ave Maria Radio, and more. So, Today, we're going to be talking about uh, uh, his new book, which is These Twelve, The Gospels Through the Apostles' Eyes, which is very, very interesting. It focuses a lot on their mission, apostolic succession, how Christ trained them. And this book, uh, just before I welcome my guest to the show, I just want to say that I really liked it. And um, <clears throat> and I'll talk about more of that in a minute. But I want to welcome you to the show, Rod, before I go blabbing any further. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Brian. I'm glad to be here. This is this is fun. I always enjoy these, uh, these kind of talks. So uh, yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. We're glad to have you. And I liked your book. It's so different. I mean, It's not a book, uh, people, if you think it's just, oh, well, here's this in the Bible, here's that in the Bible, this passage proves this, this, you know, early church father says it's not written like that. It's written from the eyes of the apostles, literally what it says. So he takes you through the life of the apostles. And some of the things were actually, you know, I learned and they were really mind blowing and really kind of cool. It reminded me of reading Brant Petrie, you know, you just read stuff and it's, you know, (laughs) it's kind of cool. So uh, maybe you could start there. I mean, Maybe you could explain your book, uh, give us a whirlwind tour, and maybe even start with uh, what is apostolic succession, just in case our audience doesn't know. Sure, let's do that. I uh, uh, I open the book with a few questions. I say, uh, what was it like to become one of the 12 apostles? What did that experience feel like for the people who went through it? And once it was over, how did they understand what it was that had happened to them? In other words, it's a thought experiment. The whole book is a thought experiment about what happened to those men, what it was like to experience what they went through. And uh, uh, as a way of understanding better uh, what it means to be an apostle and why the apostles have the vital role that they have in the economy of our salvation. So uh, the that was it. It was a, it was a way of learning myself as I thought through the issues using my imagination. It was a way of uh, trying to teach myself what it meant to be, what, what, what it is we confess when we say in the creed that the church is apostolic. And it's something that all of us recite every Sunday probably, but uh, we don't always uh, know totally what we mean when we say, when we confess an apostolic church. So that, that was the idea behind the book. Yeah, that is true. We don't really think about it. We just kind of rattle it off and <laughs> maybe Take think about the words. Sometimes. Yep, this is what Catholics say. <laughs> but what is but, what does apostolic mean? Well, it 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 means in the simplest and shortest way, it means that the the apostles, the twelve apostles chosen by Christ, are foundational to His work. They're not some sort of byproduct or accidental uh, detail that happens to be recorded in in uh, Scripture. Uh, I, I can't really take uh, credit for the wonderful blurb that my publishers put on the back of the book when they wrote, uh, the men were the mission. And that that's great, though. That idea is definitely in the book. Uh, Christ didn't write the New Testament. As far as we know, he didn't write anything. Uh, and the number of people that he taught was limited, given the uh, enormous later expanse of the church that we know. Uh, he committed his message to men. In other words, he took 12 men and intensely, personally discipled them, uh, apprenticed them. 
And the purpose was so that he could send them out with the message and uh, to do what he knew he wouldn't be there to do. And that is to personally carry his message uh, to the four corners of the earth. He gives that job over to them. And therefore, the apostles have a permanent place of importance in the, uh, in the economy of our salvation and in the uh, nature of the church that Christ founded. He, uh, uh, he, he founded the church in such a way that the man would always be important to the church. And I'll, I'll back that up a little later with some scripture, but, uh, uh, but that's it. It's the nature of the church that Christ built that it is apostolic. That is, that it was built on those men and that those men continue to be important right up to the end of the world. Yeah, very interesting. And it reminded me of that as I was reading through the book, you know, that they were the mission and uh, yeah. Christ didn't write anything. And rather, he trained 12 men to go teach and preach right. uh, to the ends of the world. So, you know, obviously, Protestant Catholics have a little bit of a different understanding about uh, church, about um, government of the church, about apostolic uh, succession. And uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the differences before we begin. I know you had a Baptist friend who had a completely different worldview than you did. <laughs> well, I don't. I, I was my, I was still a Baptist at the time, so I would say that my worldview was changing. Oh, at fair that enough. Time. But he, uh, uh, yeah, I, I asked the seminarian that I knew. Uh, I had some of these ideas had occurred to me, like for example, the very first thing that the apostles do after the ascension. Can you remember what it is? Don't mean to put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> right after the ascension, they... The very first thing, first chapter of the book of Acts. No, I can't remember. They go out and preach? They pick a successor to Judas. That's right. They bring in a bench player to replace the man who failed. And they, it, it's an important piece of business. It's not just some detail. For some reason... There have to be 12 apostles. 11 won't work. And so they have to pick somebody out of the larger group of 70 that Jesus commissioned. They pick a bench player. They pick uh, somebody to come in and, uh, and pinch hit for the, the man that failed. And the, uh, that man was Matthias. And, uh, but the, the importance of the thing, the weight that they give it, they even connect it to a they even connect it to a, an Old Testament prophecy. Let his bishopric another take. Uh, this is a prophesied event, just like the coming of Christ, uh, the virgin birth and the rest of it, uh, that there, there would be a betrayal and then somebody else would take over the job. Somebody else would step in and, and succeed where the other man failed. So uh, that uh, is mysterious stuff, but it shows early on that apostolicity is important. And not just that, the, the need for 12 apostles, the need that, uh, to continue this, this institution of the 12 that Jesus created and to continue it and to, to secure it for the future. And that's the very beginning. The kernel of the idea of apostolic succession is right there, that uh, there was a vacated office and that that vacated office needed to be replaced. What is the office? What's the purpose of it? What was the office for? Well, Jesus himself tells us. He says, uh, when, he, in, when he speaks to the apostles at their commissioning, he says, uh, whoever hears you, hears me. And whoever hears me, hears the one who sent me. So, Contrarywise, whoever rejects you or despises your message, rejects me, Jesus. And whoever does that rejects the one that sent me, the yeah. Father. So a very close chain of transmission that was intended to pass from Jesus to the apostles and then was intended to continue from there. People who say that that office was temporary, that only the apostles were the only ones who held it, uh, that's not said in scripture. That's a dogma that they're bringing in from outside. The idea that the need for somebody else to take the vacated bishopric was no longer exists. That's sheer dogmatism on, on the part of people who say that because there's nothing to that effect in Scripture. The, uh, on the contrary, we see that this chain of custody from the Father to the Son to the Apostles, his ambassadors, St. Paul tells us that, that, that we're now the ambassadors for Christ, the Apostles meeting. Then uh, uh, that uh, shows that the office has continued into the time of St. Paul and 
and his uh, success, his handpicked successor, Timothy, somebody that he laid hands on and uh, gave the gift of apostleship to. All the, all the facts that we see in scripture are for the idea that the role of apostle continued after Judas failed. It continued after the 12 themselves passed off of the scene because it went to others. So the basis of apostolic succession is there. And if you read the writings of the church fathers, it's the foundation of everything that they do. The idea that they derive their authority from somewhere. They had to, because uh, as Jesus himself says, uh, I don't speak on my own authority. I meant the one who comes in his own authority shouldn't be trusted. Right. So uh, uh, even Jesus says, I don't come on my authority, own authority. I was sent and sent on a mission. And he said, just as I was sent, I send you. So uh, there, it's all right there. And it shows that the role of the apostle in the form of the Christian bishop, who, who now 2000 years later acts uh, the, in the same capacity that the apostles acted in the early church, that is foundational. And the writings of the early fathers testify that all of the early Christians, all the Orthodox ones anyway, anybody other than really rank heretics, people that even evangelicals other Protestants would agree were heretics, were the only people who didn't believe it and teach it in those days. They were very careful to say, such and such a bishop whom I've written this letter to sits in the seat of uh, St. Mark, that uh, he's, he's at the church that was founded by the apostle Mark. And so they always use this kind of language. So the idea that the apostles uh, set up a chain, set up uh, a, a way to continue their office into the future, is foundational in scripture, but also very strongly in the writings of the early fathers. In fact, the earliest fathers, Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch are both heavy, heavy on apostolic succession as the only sound basis for Christian authority. Yeah, I was thinking about a lot of that uh, as I was reading the book too, uh, because on all the time on this channel, <clears throat> we have anti-Catholics and Protestants saying, you know, well, we don't need, you know, church leadership. You know, you just have an overseer. That's all you really need. They don't have any authority. They're not better than anyone else. Or we just need the Bible. That's all we need, you know. And so <clears throat> when you can you imagine if someone went up to St. Paul and said, Hey, I don't need you. You know, I just go by the Bible, or I don't need St. Peter. I just go by the Bible. I mean, Ananias, Acts chapter five, who got struck dead because he lied to Peter. <laughs> you know, I don't think it goes without saying that these apostles had authority. And so many comments that we see on our YouTube channel, they say, you Catholics listen to, God, uh, to man, but we listen to God. And they make a, a false uh, differentiation between God and man. But in reality, we're listening to God and to the men that he established and gave his authority to. Like you said in Luke chapter 10, he who listens to you, the men, the first leaders of the church listens to me and he who if, rejects If they object me. to the idea of men having God-like authority, the ability to speak, speak infallibly and the rest of it, then they have Jesus to blame because Jesus told <laughs> the world, I gave these men authority. And I told them, whoever listens to you listens to me. And that means whoever listens to you is listening to the voice of God. Admittedly, that's an astounding conception, and admittedly, it's very different from what evangelicals grow up with, okay? But uh, that Jesus doesn't mean that it isn't correct. And uh, uh, the, the idea that you're giving greater honor to the scriptures, for example, Paul wouldn't understand what you meant when you said we don't need an apostle because we just go by the Bible, is that <laughs> the New Testament hadn't been written yet, in, at least in, in Paul's day. Well, Paul wrote the first and earliest book of it, which seems to be the first epistle, first epistle to the Thessalonians, was written by Paul. So if you told Paul, I only go by the Bible, he would have understood probably that you meant the Hebrew scriptures, the, what we call the Old Testament. Right. And he, he would have told you, you can't just go by that. We have a, the definitive word from God now in Christ who explains the scriptures to us. And uh, so... Yes, they begin to use their infallible authority to write infallible books for us to read, but uh, the authority is apostolic. Even the books come with apostolic authority. Yeah, and, G and Paul even used that in many uh, ways. Like he said, I, I want to write to you more, which would have been scripture and apostolic, but he said, I want to tell you in person. So he was also preaching the word of God as well as writing the word of God. Exactly, correct? exactly right. The yeah. uh, uh, 
you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The, uh, uh, the people who say we only go by the Bible and say you choose the word of men, they differ amongst themselves almost as many uh, as there are individual believers. All the individual denominations and many individual people all have their exact salad bar mix of which doctrines they believe in. And uh, so if, if the Bible alone and just letting the Bible speak for itself is supposed to create uh, sound doctrine, it doesn't. And, and there's no need to even back that up with an argument. You just look around at the world. All the people who say they just went to the Bible and let it speak for themselves uh, differ amongst themselves to an almost fantastic degree. Whereas <laughs> the, uh, uh, it, I, I sometimes surprise people who say, well, you know, isn't it a shame that we can't get Christian unity? And I say, well, you know, Christian unity is still basically here. Uh, 1720ths of the world's churches uh, have the Catholic faith, Catholic with a small c. In other words, that's all the Roman Catholic churches, all the Eastern Orthodox churches who believe the Catholic faith, except for a few points connected with government and how the bishops settle differences between themselves. And even the traditional Anglican community still have, still have the Catholic faith on the books. That amounts to 1720ths of the world's Christians. That's uh, who believe the faith that we find in the church fathers. So uh, that means something. If, if uh, you step away from the word of men, that is apostolic succession, and then step into the world of every man with his own Bible and private interpretation, you step from order into chaos, even now in 2022 AD. Yeah. And it's interesting because they listen to their pastors who are men and they learn the Bible from their pastors who are men. But I feel like people don't really think this out. I feel like they just attack the Catholic church, but I feel like you've made a very good foundation here for apostolic succession, which you're going to build on a little later. Um, I but I think it, that it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's ultimately biblical. The New Testament hadn't even been penned yet. The first document had not even been penned yet when the apostles were already preaching, teaching, correcting, reproving, and making doctrine by Christ. Probably about authority. 10 years between the founding of the church at Pentecost and the first book of the New Testament being written, about 10 years. That yeah. means the church got along without a New Testament for 10 years. Right, pretty, exactly. Pretty powerful idea. I like the um, part in your book. I found it interesting that you said uh, Nathaniel, and I hadn't really thought about this before. It was something that I didn't really consider, but you said Nathaniel and Peter had virtually the same response about who Jesus Christ was. But, you know, while they were both brought in to be bishops, one was made the head of the church. Can you talk a little bit about the special role that Peter had? Um, and the uh, after that, perhaps the insight he had on the mountain tr of transfiguration, I thought that was really interesting as well. Well, I think so too. Uh, I will say that I don't de delve heavily into Petrine privileges in this book. I don't, I no, you know, I there are many that. good books on that subject already. I don't emphasize the role of, of Peter as a, uh, uh, as the uh, foundation of the papacy. And I, uh, in fact, I go so far as to say that in one important sense, all, in, in an Orthodox Catholic sense, uh, all of the 12 were vicars of Christ. That is, they acted in persona Christi in virtue of that commission they were given. Whoever hears you, hears me. So, uh, but it is true that Jesus responds to Peter's confession. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God differently than he does Nathaniel's confession, which happened at the very beginning. One of the very first things in the Christ public ministry is uh, his call of Nathaniel at the fig tree, where he says, uh, you know, uh, I saw you under the fig tree. And uh, that seems to, to imply to Nathaniel uh, a miraculous knowledge on the part of Jesus. And because he responds by saying, uh, uh, you are the son of God. He, he uh, you are the, the king of Israel, the son of God. Now, you would think they both confessed son of God. What's the difference? Right. Why does Jesus attribute uh, and give and respond to Peter's confession by giving him a reward, you know, a, a promise of, of special role and a, uh, a special commendation saying you got this not from study or from human wisdom, but from direct from God, a direct word from God. We don't really know why. But it does seem to imply that uh, Nathaniel was probably confessing son of God in a sense that was a great honor, 
but not the full New Testament sense. The Old Testament uses that term, son of God. There are several places and several ways in which uh, the New Old Testament writers call sometimes an individual a son of God. And it usually implies a special role, a special uh, uh, commission from God, but doesn't necessarily imply that, in fact, it doesn't imply at all that this is the incarnation of the second person, the divine trinity. So uh, it's easy to believe that. So the, the conclusion that I reach with some help from the fathers is that uh, Nathaniel is confessing that Jesus, he believes that Jesus is the chosen Christ, the instrument of God's salvation, without having a full understanding of, of what that means as far as the divinity of Christ or any of those other things. Whereas Peter seems to have advanced further, we know from the context and other things that Peter did and said around that time, that he was a better student, that he was getting ahead of the other 11 in his awareness of, of who Jesus was and, uh, uh, and just exactly how unique this particular son of God was. So you mentioned the matter of the transfiguration. Let me preface this just a little bit by saying one of my pet peeves that I have sort of brought out uh, in this book and also in interviews to the, the interviews I've already done with other uh, commentators uh, about the book, that the homilists, both Catholic and Protestant, have fallen lately, I think, into a bad habit of making uh, a sloppy habit of making the apostles into sort of the comic relief of the piece. Uh, how, I, don't, I don't know if you have, but I've sat through more than one sermon where they make get the preacher, the preacher actually gets laughs from his audience uh, by talking about Peter being a buffoon or saying something stupid or, uh, you know, they usually follow it up by saying everything changed on Pentecost. I don't think that's the real answer. And for one thing, I think the early fathers, this is this tone is so different than the way the early fathers approach this issue. When the early fathers speak of the 12 apostles, it's with a, a reverence just a little short of the way they speak of our Lord himself. And they attribute to them all sorts of miraculous uh, qualities, which we some of which we see in scripture, the uh, miracles, same kind of miracles that Jesus did, the uh, the uh, continuation of Christ's miraculous ministry and stuff. But uh, I think uh, I think Clement of Rome says that they had perfect foreknowledge of what was to come. I mean, all sorts of really uh, profound tributes. So it would horrify the the uh, the early fathers to hear uh, the apostles made the brunt of a joke, as they often are. I'm afraid in churches that's sad. Uh, I think it comes from a an overreaction to. Uh, the uh, uh, the fact that sometimes the apostles do speak out of turn, they give a wrong answer, they seem ambitious. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, slow they get to believe. Slow to believe, which is you and I need to be careful about pointing the finger at other exactly. people. About that. <laughs> I, I certainly need need that lesson. Uh, uh, it's being driven home to me every day. The fact that I myself am slow to believe, but the. Uh, uh, the story of the transfiguration is a good example. It's one of the best ways to uh, to refute this and maybe teach people to break this bad habit. One of the best examples that that of something where a passage where a homilist will try to get a laugh at Peter's expense is uh, at the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that the Lord, his appearance is transformed and is uh, he looks like a, he's as bright as the sun and he's in white clothing and he looks like an angel and all the rest of it. So, and on his right and his left are Moses, the great lawgiver and Elijah, the greatest of the prophets. Right. Um, Peter clearly is having an amazing experience. What we colloquially call a mountaintop experience in a lot of church, uh, church talk these days. And that expression surely comes from this story in the gospel. Um, and he just cries out spontaneously, this is great. It is really fantastic to be here. He says, let's, he's trying to think of what to do. He says, let's build three booths, one for you and one for Elijah and, and uh, one for Moses, and just stay here on the mountaintop. And uh, the evangelist steps in at this point and says, Peter said this because uh, he didn't know what he was saying. 
Okay. So this is often given as an example of a stupid comment. Oh, wait a minute. You, you've had this mountaintop experience. You're going to build tents and live in tents the rest of your life. And, you know, even the evangelist says this was a dumb thing to say. Actually, not so much. Uh, if you know something about uh, Jewish customs and Jewish holy days and festivals, as Peter certainly did, you know about the festival of, festival of Sukkot. Jews keep it even today in September, uh, where they literally put up big tent pavilions and they all have a big community picnic, really, or camping out. It lasts several days many times. And they go on a camping trip together and they sleep in tents. Okay. Well, the reason that it was called the Festival of Tents, the Festival of Booths, in the Old Testament was because it commemorated that time during the Exodus when the people carried the Ark of the Covenant out of Egypt uh, with them to, uh, uh, you know, with the broken pieces, the broken tablet inside, and what the Talmud calls the Shekinah of God. The Shekinah of God is the mysterious real presence of God, that God was really present in the Ark in a way that, uh, uh, that he isn't present in the world in general, a, a prefiguring of the sacrifice of the altar, of course, the sacrament of the altar. So the, uh, the, the, the ark was carried and sheltered like the people were in tents as they traveled through the wilderness. And uh, now, of course, as Indiana Jones tells us, the ark was carried off at one point and it was lost and mysteriously taken away. So in later generations, the Jews, the, this festival took on a bittersweet quality. Uh, it, it, the Feast of Emmanuel is what they called it, uh, the festival of God with us. But once the ark was gone, that festival of God with us came to be understood as kind of the festival of the God who used to be with us. It had a, a quality of longing and, and sadness to it. And so that to this day, it's, it's a festival that's celebrated to commemorate that period. So when Peter says, let's put up these Sukkot, these booths, he's, he's saying, we had a festival of God with us and now God's with us again. In other words, he's saying the Shekinah of God, the presence of God dwells in the man Jesus in the same way or even some greater way than it did in the ark. So the lostness of the ark is over, it's back. The Emmanuel is here with us again. Let's build the uh, these booths that we traditionally do and celebrate. Let's let's go camping with God again the way we used to. So uh, uh, the uh, that's a touching idea. And uh, yes, the evangelist says he didn't know what he was talking about. Several of the early fathers say that uh, that that's a reference to the fact that Peter his response wasn't wrong, but what he didn't know was that the time. I mean, the end of the story, the happy ending, Peter seems to think the happy ending is here. The man Jesus is glorified, transfigured. Now the Messiah will have all the power he needs to do everything he wants to do and free us from de the devil and free us from the Romans and all the rest of it. And uh, the happy ending is here, okay? Now, Jesus, of course, knows and the evangelist knows now that the happy ending doesn't come yet. It, there's some sad events to go through first. And then there's 2,000 years at least of church history of waiting, of calling out for the intimacy of the camping out with God, the, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And uh, uh, Peter doesn't know that yet. He doesn't know that the passion is coming and that, that this isn't the happy ending. In fact, this is the part where the sad stuff starts. So, uh, that's what the evangelist means by saying, Peter said, let's just stay here forever in these booths. He thinks that the marriage supper is here already, and it isn't. So he spoke I, not knowing what he said. I thought that so was that's so an example of Peter's profound understanding of the Hebrew faith and Hebrew holy days and customs, not an example of his foolish ignorance. Yeah, I thought that was an extremely uh, wonderful uh one, one of the wonderful stories, if people um, haven't, again, you know, it's called These 12, the Gospel Through the Apostles' Eyes. And it tells a lot of interesting stories like that with a lot of interesting facts. 
Um, you had mentioned before uh, that all the apostles were, and every priest is in some sense, the vicar of Christ. Um, you know, a lot of Protestants will say, you know, well, that just means, you know, he's God on earth, or that means that he is uh, God in the flesh and everyone has to listen to him. And he's basically on the same status as God. <laughs> and, and they seem to misunderstand these terms. Could you maybe explain it a little deeper and show that, you know, the connection that it has uh, with how Jesus prepared them and the mission he gave them? Well, I, I will do that. But first, let me just say that on the face of it, that's what the text we've been quoting say. Whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever hears me, hears the one who sent me. Uh, that, you, the, the identification could not be closer. Jesus is not giving his godhood to them, but he's giving right. them the power to speak in his name, to be Correct. his legate. Okay, And it does imply an infallible voice, which is the reason why the church is uh, forced to say this really embarrassing thing that, uh, that under certain circumstances, the Catholic Church speaks infallibly and tells the infallible truth that Jesus committed to her care. There's no getting around the shocking quality of the fact that, that the man who sits in the apostle's seat speaks for God in certain circumstances, not in his personal self. A good, a good way to understand this maybe is, uh, I'm a history buff, so. John Adams was George Washington's uh, ambassador to the court of St. James. That is, he was the first U.S. ambassador to Great Britain after America achieved her independency. And uh, uh, he became Washington's legate. He was sent to England to make treaties, to, to make decisions that Washington couldn't make because he wasn't there. And this was in an age when it took two months to get a letter back and forth between England and uh, the United States. The fast mail in those days was two months across the Atlantic. So somebody had to be empowered to stand in, in Washington's name and make decisions that really were Washington's to make. But Washington had chosen him, given him plenary power as his ambassador, somebody who because of the nature of the situation, might have to be called to make a decision on the spot. And Washington gave that, as every president gives uh, an ambassador of this type now, his, uh, his uh, permission to act on his behalf and a promise to back it up. Okay. So uh, it doesn't mean that Adams literally became Washington or that the two men were the same person in two different disguises or that we trust Adams more than we do Washington, any of those silly things. Uh, but Jesus does do this. He departs. He goes away. There's, he's not here personally to make the decisions himself. And in spite of a lot of, uh, you know, airy talk about the fact that we don't need anybody like that, we've got a Bible. Everybody knows that human councils and human denominational boards and all the rest make these kind of decisions all the time about which uh, interpretation of a certain doctrine they hold for their group of churches or whatever. That doesn't make them God. It doesn't make them vicars in the sense that we're stealing any of God's prerogatives or whatever. Human decisions are a necessary part of every church, not just ours. But uh, apostolic succession ensures that there's a special sauce for uh, uh, for these uh, decisions in the uh, churches that have the apostolic succession, an active ingredient that other churches don't have. But uh, the idea that, uh, that somebody who speaks in Jesus's name speaks with Jesus's authority is not our idea. It was his idea. He says, as the father has sent me, even so I send you. And the, in Greek, that word sent here is apostle. As the father has apostled me, sent me out with a mission, even so I apostle you. So that he's the one that made the connection. He's the one who said, just the same way I speak for God, you're going to be able to do that too. Yeah. And you had mentioned John 20, 21 through 23 earlier, where Jesus said, as the father has sent me, so no, I send you. And he breathed on them, which is only the second time in the entire Bible that God has breathed on someone. And he was breathing his divine authority into the apostles so that they could do the mission that he had for them. I mean, once your eyes are open to this. You see it all over the New Testament, the apostles teaching and preaching in Christ's name, speaking with his authority as if he was there, like right behind them. And um, yeah. it's really very interesting to see. Uh, another 
moment, you might say, that you mentioned in the book, um, life-changing moment for the apostles. Um, and, and one of the parts that I really liked in your book was uh, the part about the Last Supper and the priesthood that Christ established and the connection to Melchizedek. That was all very interesting. Can you briefly explain um, that? I, I, I think that our audience would love that as well. Well, I'll do another commercial for another book of mine called Scripture Wars, which is all about uh, the way in which uh, uh, a, a New Testament priesthood uh, was part of God's plan and how it was really a continuation, not, well, in some senses, a continuation of the, uh, of the Levitical priesthood, but mainly a continuation of the Melchizedek priesthood. Before the Levitical uh, priesthood was, was, was coined, created, instituted, there was another priesthood. Uh, the, the book of Genesis and, and the earlier books, the Pentateuch, talk about uh, the priesthood of this mysterious figure called Melchizedek, who ministered to Abraham and the patriarchs, and who brought a sacrifice of bread and wine, okay? The, uh, that, of course, is the sacrifice that the church offers today, the Melchizedek sacrifice of bread and wine, not the, the blood of, uh, of uh, bulls and goats that the Levitical priesthood was told to, uh, to sacrifice. The argument in Scripture Wars, and there's no time to go into it now, but basically the, the Levitical priesthood was always meant to be temporary, and thus the law of Moses was always meant to be temporary. The scriptures make this very clear, even in the Old Testament, and the St. Paul makes it very clear indeed in the book of Galatians, the, the idea that this, uh, this priesthood was, had a built-in lifespan, that it was supposed to end with the coming of Christ. So the, uh, so the Levitical priesthood is an interregnum, a, a, a unique period, a special period with special circumstances created because of the failure of the people with the golden calf, and then later uh, opportunities that they received, their repeated failure to keep the terms of the covenant that they'd made at Sinai. So uh, the uh, so when that priesthood is done away with, the priesthood of the uh, of the Levitical period, the period, the Mosaic period, when that's done away with, doesn't mean there's no priesthood at all. It means that we revert back to previous conditions. We revert back to the Melchizedek priesthood. And uh, uh, the, you know, you often hear, I did it myself, so I'm not attacking anybody. The idea that, uh, well, we don't have a priesthood now. That's done away with Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the high priest. He's the only priest we need. This is made clear in the book of Hebrews. Well, and we rely very heavily on the idea that uh, the priesthood of the believer, you, you all believers are priests now. And I, I think that I may have even believed that Catholics would deny that idea that all believers are priests, but we don't. The, the Catholic Church teaches just as strongly as the evangelical churches that, uh, that every, we, are a king, we are a nation of kings and priests. But what we forget is that that quote is from the Old Testament, from the book of First Kings, I believe, that, that the Hebrews were called a nation of kings and priests. Um, so... The fact that the uh, children of Israel were kings and priests did not mean that there was no ministerial priesthood. The Levitical priesthood was called by God a special priesthood above and beyond the, the lay priesthood of the laity uh, for special purposes of God. Uh, it, but it, it didn't mean that there couldn't, there, just because everybody was in some sense a priest didn't mean that there couldn't be also uh, a sacrificing priesthood, which is what we have now. We have a kingdom, a nation, a nation of kings and priests. We also have a sacrificing minister, ministerial priesthood, just as the Hebrews had, and just apparently as the patriarchs had. A Melchizedek offered a sacrifice of bread and wine, just as our priests do today. And this was this action was made clear to the apostles at the Last Supper, when uh, Jesus created uh, the new sacrifice of bread and wine and taught them how to do it. I hope it's not an irreverent metaphor, but I compared what Jesus did at the Last Supper to the flight attendant on an airplane, uh, showing you how to put the vest on and the mask and all the rest of it. Uh, going through this, this motion she's gone through a hundred times, but doing it so as if you were children. So you, you know, at the Last Supper, Jesus is showing the uh, the apostles what they're going to be doing for the rest of their lives, and that is offering the sacrifice of the mass. Yeah. 
exactly. And uh, preaching the gospel, uh, like I believe you mentioned in your book, uh, Matthew 28, 19, where he sent them off to all nations to baptize and to do what he himself was doing. I love what you said. When I give confirmation retreats or I'm preaching on in different seminars and such, I say that Jesus was sent into the world to, to teach, to instruct us, to forgive our sins, to heal us and uh, bring us back to God, to reconcile us back to God. Right, right. And he knew he wasn't going to be here forever. So he established a church to continue until the end of time, what he started. And that was to teach and to preach. That was to forgive sins. And that was to reconcile people back to God. And I think yeah. you've said that perfectly, that that's exactly what he spent three years, day and night doing is training them to follow in his footsteps. It's like the ultimate apprenticeship. <laughs> exactly. It's the whole meaning of the word disciple. It really has no other meaning but that. Yeah. So maybe you can <clears throat> talk a little bit about um, before we finish here, the uh, once Jesus rose from the dead and, you know, he appeared to them in Pentecost, what did it look like after the resurrection for the apostles when they became in charge of the church? They received that commission. They received that mission and they they launched into it. What did that look like post resurrection, the beginning of the church? Well, I would say. Mostly there was continuity. In other words, the book of Acts makes it clear that it sort of was business as usual. Uh, during their discipleship, Jesus sent them out into the world with the power to heal the sick and to cast out devils. And we see them doing exactly that in the book of Acts, going around, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, casting out devils. It was the continuation of their mission that they had before he left. But in an, an important way, too, something was new. Uh, one thing I bring out, and this, this comes from re, trying to, hard to read the story as if I've never heard it before, and that is that the apostles and nobody else knew, we take it as a commonplace, that there's going to be a second coming of Christ. We confess in the creed, he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Uh, the idea of a second coming, though, implied that you knew that the first one was over and that another one would come. And it was something you had that the ascension made clear to the apostles. He left. They didn't know he was going to do that. He talks about going away, but he'd been away before. He, uh, uh, he, he talks about all sorts of other things. But finally, at the ascension, the angels especially make it clear that you're going to have to do without him for a while. Uh, we, it's, it's interesting, we, we, we talk about and get great comfort from the fact that Christ is really present with us today in the church in, in many senses, just as he promised, I, uh, lo, I am with you always, most especially in the real presence of Christ in the sacrament of the altar. But uh, uh, the church also, something we neglect, and the early church was very clear on, was that uh, that there's going to be a second coming, and until that happens, we're going to be without him in some really important senses. Yes, take spiritual comfort from these spiritual aids, but he's not with us as a man among men, and we're supposed to be longing for that. The uh, book of Revelation, the whole Bible ends with the cry, Maranatha, you know, come Lord Jesus, come back. We miss you. We want you back. <laughs> And uh, uh, we, we, we can't get along well without you. We need your help. We need you with us physically as a man among men. When Jesus became a man, it wasn't temporary. It was permanent. His place really is with us. Okay. So when uh, he comes back to us as part of our family, again, as he is, then there's a healing. And so uh, that longing for the second coming, though, is not clear until they've realized that the first one is over. And that happens at the, at the ascension. And so the early days of the church after Pentecost, yes, you've got the spiritual presence of the third person of the Trinity with you now in, in the Holy Spirit. But that sense that one day the Lord's coming back, and we, we're real focused on that. We, uh, we talk about it a lot. The day of his coming, the day of his appearing, you know, any day now, you know, that people say, well, the apostles were deceived. They thought that the Jesus was coming back within their lifetimes and stuff. And that's a whole nother discussion. But, but it's more wishful thinking than it is deception. 
they, they keep saying, yeah, in any time, it's got to be any time because I can't bear the thought of not seeing him again. And so that's the characteristic attitude of the church is that come Lord Jesus, because we need you. We miss you. We're getting, we're getting back with getting along with stopgap measures. And even the apostles know they're willing to confess the idea that, uh, all of our power and authority comes from Jesus. I'm a stopgap measure. I'm an apostle. He made an apostle, but this is this is uh, just for the duration. He's coming back himself one day. He's going to do a much better job than I do, and uh, uh, we we need him and we want him to come back. So the early the the characteristic note of the early church, which really ought to come back in the church today, is uh, come back, Lord Jesus. We uh, we need you. And you kind of point that out in your book, too. You quote a lot of the early church fathers and show how they actually accepted apostolic succession. And really, it was passed on right after. I mean, you see it in the Bible. I mean, Paul lay, and I tell I tell non-Catholics this. I say, people say, oh, you just need two or three people, and that's a church. I say, well, Matthew, you know, 18, 50 through 18 disproves that. But I said, the church literally talks about bishops. It talks about presbyters or priests. It talks about deacons. It literally talks about the laying on of hands and other things that I mentioned. But so I say, if your church does not have these things, it's not the true church. You know, this is established by Christ and it's been passed on for 2000 years. And we see the earliest fathers like Clement and we see Ignatius of Antioch and Irenaeus and Justin Martyr and others having it passed on to them and then passing it on to others or talking about it. Um, and I find that interesting. Con- that down. What's yeah. that? I was saying context is so important. I used so to quote so. that, that phrase, uh, wherever two or three are gathered, there am I in the midst of them. Uh, yeah. The previous verse says, he said this to the apostles. The context is he's saying this to the 12. Exactly. Wherever two or three of you, the apostles are gathered, there am I in the midst of you. Now, uh, it may have an extension to all Christians. Most things like this do. Most of the things that Jesus say, says to the apostles apply in some secondary sense to us. But you can't just willy-nilly drop the context. He said it to the apostles, where the 12, wherever two or three of you are gathered, I'm present. So uh, uh, context is so, so important in all Bible interpretation. And many much of the teaching about the unique role of the apostles has been lost because so much of the things that 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 were were missing those phrases that open up the saying it is he said to his apostles he said to the twelve uh, many of the things he said he said to the twelve and some of the things he said to them apply directly to the to us and some of them apply only indirectly to us. Yeah, not just the context of the Bible, but the context of history as well. The unanimous consent of all Christians right. down through the ages, right? Um, now, did you wanna? Did you have anything else you wanted to add about apostolic succession, or any you know final thoughts that you wanted to leave our audience with in that regard? Well, I would say look into it. You know, it. Uh, I, I mentioned the seventeen twentieth. It has kept seven apostolicity. This idea of apostolic succession that a church is not a church unless it's uh, uh, bishops and other ministers are in the line of succession, that their hands were laid on them by someone who had his uh, bishopric given to him by the laying on of hands all the way back to the 12 apostles. That, uh, it works. Like I say, 1720th of the church still holds the Catholic faith. Again, minus a few of the, the political details that always screw us human beings up. But uh, uh, on 95 points out of 100, those great bodies still hold the Catholic faith. And it happened because of and through apostolic succession. And uh, it's nothing to be sneezed at. The idea that the church, it should be unified. The Apostle Paul said, I beseech you, I beseech you in the name of Christ that you all say the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly united just the same way that Jesus and the father are united. Right. He's giving, he's saying, I beseech you to do this to always, all of you need to say the same thing. That's one thing that can't be said. I'm afraid about uh, evangelical churches in spite of their many other wonderful qualities. They certainly do not all say the same thing and they know <laughs> they don't just as I did. So, but, and that's what apostolic succession is good for. It's quality control. It's a chain of custody. Anybody who's been in the military knows about a chain of custody. 
that uh, uh, that you have to be able to show the provenance of these documents. Where did they? Who had them before you had them? And that's that was God's own method of, of quality control was to create a a chain of custody for His message, which began with the training of the twelve. And it's trustworthy. I mean, anyone who says, "Well, you just listen to men," well, it was men who decided on the canon of the Bible. It was men who decided which books were going to be in the Bible and which ones were not. Of course. Well, the best way of saying this, I I sometimes have somebody who I sometimes have negative commenters who say, well, you just chose the word of these men over the over the Bible. I say, no, what I did was I went, I decided that when I, my interpretation of scripture differs from the interpretation held by the fathers, I'm going to default back to them rather than my own understanding. In other words, it's not about, uh, you can't get away with men. I'm a man. If I look at the Bible and come up with my interpretation, then men were involved. Exactly. The question is whether a better man than I am can get involved too, or a group of better men than I am. And that's what it's all about. Or uh, centuries of men. (laughs) uh, I just default to the opinion of the fathers as being more likely to understand these passages correctly than I do. So that's Especially since the they were trained by the apostles and their Absolutely. successors. Some some of them directly. So. Exactly. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mr. Bennett, for coming on our show today. And thank you for uh, blessing us uh, with your knowledge. And I would just give uh, the people again one more time. These 12, it's uh, the gospel through the apostles' eyes. You can get it on, I believe, Catholic Answers Press. Is that right? Catholic.com. Catholic.com yep. forward slash shop. and um yeah definitely check it out it's a very interesting read it's and summer's coming up it's a great summer read so uh there we go thank you for joining us today thank you for having me this is this been a blessing and i've enjoyed meeting you for the first time this is great have me back again again sometime i absolutely will it's been a pleasure for us too and uh i want to thank all of you out there for watching our podcast and tuning in and please do your part in helping to share the gospel by sharing this video and liking it and commenting and all of these things help to make it more popular so that more people see it and the truth of this message can get out there to the world thank you all for tuning in please check out our show notes below if you'd like to support our ministry if you'd like to follow us on social media or see what we do at catholic truth make God bless all of you. Please, please, please keep us and Mr. Bennett in your prayers as we will always be praying for you. God bless you all. So long, everybody. 